Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I already slightly regret this topic and this podcast episode. No, I'm just kidding. I have been thinking about doing this episode for a while, and um, I don't actually regret it, but... I am a people pleaser at heart, if you don't already know that about me. I hate upsetting people. I hate interpersonal conflict. And yet, this is a really important topic, and it needs to be discussed. Because, first of all, most people, or many people, don't even know why food addiction, the concept of it, is so controversial, or even the fact that it is. And I believe that this concept is really at the center of some very important issues, within the health space, if you will. So, you know, some of these issues or sort of this idea of like the fight against the weight loss and diet industry or diet culture, which I very much believe in, as well as the fight against the food industry that markets highly processed and um, palatable foods and is very good at marketing to us and targets certain groups of individuals. So, These are crucial topics. Um, It's actually interesting that these topics are very emotionally charged, which I think makes a lot of sense because many of us, it's all tied up in how we think about ourselves. If we have a history of disordered eating, we might have very strong opinions about diet culture. Um, I certainly do, which is all valid. Um, But also there's people with chronic health conditions and very strong opinions about their health and what their health means about them or how they became, you know, developed these chronic health conditions. And there's just a lot of opinions. We all have bodies, we all eat. And uh, unfortunately, as many things, we do a lot of shaming of others within the field or, you know, even on social media, certainly if people use terms like food addiction um, and the shaming is a really big problem. So, it's time for me to step out of the uh, silence of, I mean, I've sort of had opinions about these things, but I'm going to delve in, talk a little bit about this topic, go over where some of the disagreements are, and then talk about some some steps that you can take. So we're going to cover, you know, why the concept of food addiction is so controversial, first of all, 
I'll talk a little bit about a story of my own professional fears related to this topic and a story that happened last year that um, made me be even more quiet about the topic. We're going to, at the end, I will suggest three crucial questions to ask yourself today to kind of unpack and understand how this concept of food addiction uh, impacts you or how you're thinking about it in relation to your own relationship with food and your body. And then finally, a couple suggestions for how to promote some more productive conversations about this topic and other more nuanced topics. So spoil alert there, social media is not involved. So that's what we're going to be covering today. So buckle up, let's get started. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote-unquote be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought, they will notice I've gained weight, or I need to lose weight by then. Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you... I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide which is quite beautifully designed if I say so myself, and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone, is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P dot com forward slash motivate. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. All right, guys, so let's dive in to the concept of food addiction And let's just start with what is the controversy? So if you're anything like me, you may not have realized just how controversial food addiction was, despite being in this field, uh, the weight management eating disorder field for as long as I have been, which is a long time at this point, I forget how many years, I did not realize how controversial this topic was. So what happened for me is I read the book Health at Every Size many years ago now, maybe eight or so, and I agreed with it then and I agree with it now very much. And so I joined a 
one of many Facebook groups where Health at Every Size practitioners can meet and connect and share ideas. And largely this group was helpful. Um, but very early on in the group, I think this was about a year ago now when I first started to sort of connect as I was starting to go off on my own and leave healthcare, I was wanting to connect more with people in this kind of non-diet, anti-diet space, if you will. And very early on, I saw a post in the group that was getting a whole bunch of comments. And the post was about a speaker who was doing, it was a, another therapist who was doing a talk that used the term food addiction in the title. And the Facebook group members were very outraged saying some pretty cruel things about this person giving the talk. And long story short, they eventually got the talk canceled. And this particular therapist was not in the group. And frankly, I watched all of this in horror and I still kind of have anxiety thinking about it because I was thinking to myself, first of all, that could have easily been me, particularly a couple of years ago. I, I've sort of been a little more aware and maybe hadn't used that term food addiction. Although really, I think a year or two ago, I wrote a blog that sort of talked about it. And I mean, I, if you read the article, I talk about how what I don't think, you know, any rigidity is helpful and it's not necessary. And yet I'm not sure even in this talk, if anything was looked at except the title, I'm not hundred percent sure of the exact details, but I, you know, even in this situation, I'm sad to admit that besides asking a question in the group to sort of try to understand the outrage, I didn't specifically stand up for the speaker who, again, wasn't in the group, so she wasn't able to defend herself and sort of her intentions. And looking back, I wish I would have, but I wasn't essentially courageous enough to do that. So, you know, what I did there is I started reading and trying to understand this viewpoint and... Some of the people in the flurry of comments like shared some articles about how and why concept of food addiction are offensive and harmful and in their opinion, not evidence-based. And, you know, based on my reading, I do understand even more so why people don't like the term. And like I said, I wrote a blog post a while back where we were t I talked about how I, this idea with food addiction is that the answer is abstinence, right? Like somehow with, with some other addictions, we, with, you know, addiction to alcohol, some people choose abstinence as an option. And the article that I wrote was saying that is definitely not the only option and very often not the most appropriate option. And now I would say, you know, I, I support autonomy, right? So if you're like, I want to avoid all foods high in sugar and processed foods, like, cool, it's your body, you get to do what you want. But I don't think that for most people that I meet, that is a sustainable or really the best option for, for most people, but doesn't mean it's never the right option. So, but anyway, basically my first thought was, gosh, if I saw this, like if they saw the post that I did, they'd probably kind of eat me alive, just like this group, um, sort of it was sort of an attack, right? And this is what can happen with social media. This is the problems with social media. And I understand to some extent, it's just sort of venting. But in this particular person case, this person's talk got canceled. And while I, from everything I saw, I don't, I think that was probably unnecessary, given that I don't think the talk description suggested that it would promote disordered eating. 
and it was talked about in a, I think a, a discussion with the speaker first would have been the more appropriate thing versus going to the school that was putting on the talk and immediately getting that person canceled. That is what I think. That is what I didn't say back then. And, and I'll talk about in a moment why I think it's really essential that we have these conversations and we not shame people because we are all on this journey of learning and unlearning diet culture. And when we shame people, it further polarizes and separates us and moves us away from an effective solution. So, you know, in terms of the main reasons why the concept of food addiction is not helpful, because we have a ton of diet culture, diet mentality messages, a ton of things that teach us there's good and bad foods. We might call them healthy, unhealthy, but it Really what it comes down to for many of us is this almost implying that making a certain food choice is morally good or bad. And so, you know, versus just describing the food as what it is. And this can very much fuel eating disorders or disordered eating. So in an episode coming up with Anique Besso, I brought her back on and we talk about the continuum of disordered eating and, you know, trying to make some distinctions between when it shifts to a disorder. But essentially, health at every size, intuitive eating, anti-diet approaches, I very much believe in. Diet culture gives us so many screaming messages of rigidity that it's almost hard not to scream back because it's so damaging to think of foods in this way. And so, you know, proponents of throwing out the concept of food addiction also might argue that you can't be addicted to something that you need to survive. And of course, we don't need highly processed nutrient-poor foods that our food industry has engineered to kind of keep us coming back again and again for more to survive. Um, You know, for that reason, some people have termed the, the... concept processed food addiction to try to be more specific. And so there's a reason that, and the problem is that people do take advantage of opportunities to make money. There are people also on the other side of the spectrum that are using the term food addiction. I've talked about this briefly on the podcast before, but I, and and another attempt to sort of like just explore online communities, frankly, in the eating space. I joined this food addiction group and I was prompted to take this free quiz and I took this quiz and they basically told me I had moderate food addiction and I needed to be abstinent from food addiction or from addictive type foods like processed foods and sugar. And luckily that I knew that wasn't the case for me very clearly. And I'll talk about it in a moment, but I used to feel addicted to some foods for sure, and I do not now. So I'll talk about, like, I think most of this is diet mentality, but we're going to talk about this is a nuanced topic, and it's very important for all of us to not assume that we know the exact way to think about things. And I think it's very important that we basically stop being know-it-alls and saying, you know, that we know the exact right thing for every right person. So essentially what this came down to for me professionally was trying to figure out where I belong, right? And so I read this post and for better or for worse, I was like questioning myself, where do I belong? Because I had for years really disagreed with these traditional ways we approach weight in the health space or healthcare or standard approaches to weight management. And then 
when you find a kind of group of individuals like health at every size, you feel like, oh, they kind of get me and it's very comforting. But then I was in this Facebook group and I thought, yikes, these are not my people. And the truth is that every health at every size practitioner that I've ever met in person or had the opportunity to truly converse with, you know, are very aligned in many ways. And um, the truth as many things is the truth is in the nuances and there's nothing officially I've seen in the health at every size movement. I disagree with in writing, but again, with any movement, you have individuals who might express things in ways that I don't particularly agree with. Um, And especially in this example, I just did not agree with the way we're shaming this individual and really calling them out versus calling them into a conversation. So in this way, what we do is we make assumptions about people. We kind of put ourselves up on this moral high horse of I've got it figured out as a professional and these others don't. And I don't think this is the intention and I don't think this happens often, but it does happen and it's really, really harmful because it's going to have these groups or camps of people far apart, not interacting with each other, because who would want to interact with a group where they feel like they might be shamed? This group, even though I hadn't specifically been called out, it didn't feel as safe to me to ask questions in this group. Even my question, it didn't feel like I could ask the question with true curiosity. It was, you know, too upsetting for people. And while there's reasons that people have been very, you know, hurt and triggered by, you know, our weight-centric culture, and it's a very big problem, and yet shaming people is never helpful. So I felt this kind of just off and a little bit like a lot of self-doubt and sort of fearful. This was, again, maybe about a year ago, and so I wanted to talk about it because I think the biggest risk that I see And maybe one reason why Health at Every Size hasn't quite taken off more so is, and among other reasons, I think there's many reasons it hasn't taken off more so, um, much of that related to money. But it's, you know, I think if we think about having productive conversations across professions and across different areas, if we, again, are too shaming and too too much making assumptions about people, we're not going to, we're not going to get anywhere. It's not going to work. It's not going to actually lead to better health for the vast majority of people. And it's just not effective. So as I mentioned uh, just a second ago, personally, I did feel very addicted to food in the past. I remember learning about, I I remember learning about, um, I think the concept of anticipatory reward. So that's the idea of like before you eat, you anticipate how it's going to taste and certain areas of your brain are going to light up in anticipation of the taste of that food. That's what drives us to go get food. That's what drives some of us who have struggled with binge eating to go get in our car and go to Dairy Queen and get, uh, or what did I used to get? McFlurries from McDonald's. That, um, in that very driven binge way, um, I very much felt like that. I remember kind of finding that fascinating, learning about that in grad school. So I'm like, oh yeah, I have that. Like I 
have so much anticipation anticipation excuse me of reward before eating and i very much this the reason why health at every size online practitioners are so anti this word is because it's really hard to parse apart how much diet mentality and restriction plays a role because it's just inherent in our culture and like for me restriction body shame mistrust absolutely played a major role for me and i think for many of us that is the only thing that causes us to feel more addicted to food and for some some people specifically that i've worked with in the past the term food addiction is very validating of their experience and it actually removes shame from them and helps them move towards a lifestyle that they feel really good about i remember specifically many years ago someone asked me if food addiction was like a real thing basically she was wanting to know is this a phenomenon that like happens in my brain or am i making it up and i was able to say like absolutely there is like a process in your brain that's lighting up when you see certain foods and it's a real experience and she became tearful because she felt like by me saying that it was saying removing some of the guilt of that it's her fault that she feels this way and that is powerful so I think we need to keep that in mind when we're thinking about these concepts and we're seeing people have high emotionality around whether food addiction is real or not So I also think 100% there are foods with addictive properties and that some people are more susceptible to that than others. And this, of course, if we have diet mentality, is typically going to be amplified because, again, we view these foods as bad, we try not to eat them, we anticipate restriction, and then that drives binge eating. So I recently actually listened to a podcast with Dr. Yami on the Veggie Doctor Radio and Dr. Ashley Gearhart, I think is how you say her name. And Dr. Gearhart is a, I believe, a psychologist who does research in areas of food addiction. I think she's at University of Michigan, so not far. And I am really excited to share that Dr. Yami is going to come on the podcast in a few more weeks. And she is a board-certified pediatrician. I've been binge-listening her podcast. It's really, really good. But in this particular episode, they break down some of these issues and some of the research better than I can or will really attempt to do here today. When I interview Dr. Yami, we might touch on it, but I'm really excited to have another physician come on the show. But in their discussion, Dr. Gearhart talks about some of the harm reduction model in substance use, like alcohol use or alcohol, what some people refer to as alcoholism. She talks about how for some people, avoiding all alcohol is the best option, but there's very good evidence that that's not necessary for all people. And for others, they might, for example, she said, like avoid, always avoid liquor or avoiding drinking alone and they might be able to feel in control with some forms of drinking. So it is true, some of the proponents of not using the term food addiction will say, well, we don't need alcohol to live and we do need food, which is definitely true, but we don't need food in the forms that it is designed and modified to hook our brain to keep eating. And so, you know, it's, again, these are nuanced conversations and I really don't think there is a one-size-fits-all, and yet we it's easy for us to jump to assumptions about it, and it's very important to kind of pull ourselves back from that 
basically temptation. So again, I kind of mentioned that I do not feel addicted to any foods anymore. Um, and I did very much in the past. So I do think diet mentality plays a huge role here. However, I do think that there are still certain foods that have more of an addictive pull. And I don't think it's due to any body stuff because this is actually foods like processed, um, uh, like that skinny pop popcorn, um, other processed foods sometimes like cookies or snacks. And also those carbonated ice drinks with the artificial sweeteners. I don't restrict any foods. Um, and I have zero guilt and those foods are not, even if I was like somehow tricking myself into diet mentality, they don't have much in them, but even if they were higher in calorie, like processed cookies or things like that, I have zero guilt, zero diet mentality, but when I do eat or drink them, sometimes it's not really that hard to stop, but I notice that it's more prone, particularly if I'm stressed, where I can eat a little bit more of that. And so, again, I think that's just one example of it, sort of a nuanced thing, but that doesn't mean, I mean, I still eat those foods and I don't think there's any role in thinking of them as bad. Um, it's just they know what they're doing. The food industry knows what they're doing. They know how to design foods in a way that gets us to eat more. They're really good at what they do. That's what they do. So one of the things, and we'll get to the questions to ask yourself in just a second here, but one of the main messages that I think I want to get across that I believe strongly in is that we can and should call out both sides, meaning call out the diet and weight loss industry for profiting on our insecurities, perpetuating insecurities and feeling bad about ourselves, perpetuating disordered eating and eating disorders. And I think that the food industry is doing a similar thing often to our children. And unfortunately, this happens largely in, well, it happens across children. There, There's some rules now about marketing sugar, sugary cereals and things like that to kids. But unfortunately, a lot of times kids and families in more economically disadvantaged environments are more likely to be at more risk due to things what, like what we call food deserts, where they might have less access to healthy foods, more access to convenience foods. And so point being, we can and should call out both sides. We don't have to just call it the diet industry. I totally understand the intention to do that. It's very important. I will continue to call out the diet industry, but the food industry is also profiting. And I think it strengthens the argument when you're able to see both sides. And again, easier to do that on, I don't know, a conversation with someone or a podcast versus social media. So Maybe there's a way to do it on social media. You guys can, I could use a lot of work on my social media skills. Okay, so there's three crucial questions that you can ask yourself when it comes to food addiction that can help to parse apart how this applies to you. So one question is, do, does thinking of myself or others having an addiction to food make me trust my body or theirs more or less? Do, so does thinking of myself is having a food addiction make me trust my body more or less? Typically, the answer is yes, though I don't think this is universal. 
But I think many times the answer when I work with people is that, yes, they say, yes, I'm addicted to food. There's something wrong with me genetically or biologically, and it's not going to change. And the idea of food addiction can increase this belief when in reality that it's the fact that, you know, yes, there are some things going on in your brain that might look similar to addiction. Like I said, reward center lighting up in anticipation of eating. It doesn't mean something's wrong with you, and it doesn't mean that it's not wholly caused by the restriction. And so really, I would think of it as it's your brain doing what's designed to do. And if thinking that some foods have a strong pull over you and keeping them out of the house is helpful to you, that is fine. It's really just most important that you're honest with yourself about why you're doing it and you work towards unpacking the beliefs you hold about your body and how it functions and why it gives you the signals that it gives you and and shifting those beliefs towards more body trust. And that takes time and many times takes help of a professional to pull out those unhelpful beliefs. But I will say that I, I, I've mentioned this once before, but I listened to this interview of someone who felt really addicted to food. And I think he used that term. And when you hear him describe his description of why he eats, um, it was like more of a plant-based, I think he was eating pretty rigidly, fully plant-based, if I recall correctly. But his why behind it was very self-supportive. It was very much like, it's normal for me to desire these higher fat foods. That's what my brain was designed to do. But eating in this way, more whole food plant-based, is consistent with my values and the person that I want to be. So if he wants to think about it as food addiction, I don't see a problem with that. Maybe we don't want to perpetuate that to everyone else. And in this particular talk, he didn't use language like that. I think that that's where the nuance comes in. And so if the the way of eating and not eating these foods feels self-supportive, then that's okay. But again, most of the people that I work with, it, it, the crucial piece is being honest with yourself. We can't just force ourselves, oh, I'm just going to eat in this way to quote unquote be healthy when really deep down we still don't trust our bodies. Believe me, I tried that for many years and it does not work. So, all right. Question number two, how much is fear of weight gain part of why you're thinking of it in this way? Fear of weight gain is very common regardless of body size. It's one of the things that impacts my clients the most, like regardless of what body size they are. And this fear makes sense because we live in a culture where we're told over and over gaining weight, being in a larger body is bad. And if weight gain happens, you the reality is you could be treated differently. You could be treated with less respect and you could have less social privilege, potentially, not necessarily, but unfortunately that's a real documented effect. And so at the same time, fear of weight gain often makes us fall back into judging foods as good or bad. And although we might be telling ourselves, oh, I'm saying they're bad, like not healthy, or if we're more descriptive, not nutrient dense, but really what we're truly meaning often is that we are bad. Something about us is bad. We're ashamed of ourselves and eating those foods means something's wrong with us. And while it's true that eating a donut is not going to give much of any nutritional benefit to us, it's also true that eating one donut won't cause weight gain. But if we do call the donut bad and restrict it and then binge on donuts later or something else, that's going to lead to more stress 
and most likely weight gain over time. And so we have to weigh these factors in when we think about each individual choice. So this is something we really want to be considering when we're labeling ourselves as addicted to food. So question number three is, can you shift towards eating in a way that will positively support your mood um, or perhaps even your energy level. So one of the largest places I see untapped potential in terms of like intrinsic motivation, what we talk about in this podcast, is really looking at how foods impact our mood and energy level regardless of body size. So one thing I hear a lot is, well, I'll bring healthy food to the family picnic because there's other people that would want healthy food too or they'd really benefit because my uncle struggles with their weight or something like that. So just like I do is sort of what these uh, people might share with me. Or I need to have candy around for the kids. That's the converse. This idea of like kids and if you are in a smaller body, you need candy and you deserve it. But if you're in a larger body, you need vegetables. And the reality is we all could universally benefit from more fiber-rich vegetables, fruits, whole unprocessed foods. And this is true regardless of body size, right? Most of us also could benefit from having unrestricted access to tasty foods from time to time without judgment or guilt because food is enjoyable and that's okay. Both are and can be part of a healthy lifestyle. So if we, you know, started eating in a way that supported our mood, energy levels, but also just our, you know, preferences and worried less about what happened to our body weight, I think our mood and overall health health would very much improve. And I mean, frankly, it's possible, most likely our choices are going to be more balanced. And over time, we may lose weight. And again, this is largely dependent on the person and their biology. But it's a very challenging thing. But if you can shift towards how can I eat in a way today, that'll positively impact my mood, independent of body size, that can be a good intrinsic motivation question. When we think about building up intrinsic motivation, it's not forced. And that's really, I think, what intuitive eating or mindful eating helps people do over time. But just try on that one question for size and let me know how it goes. And finally, I just want to make a couple comments about what I hope people will consider when we think about concepts that are controversial in the health space, like food addiction being one of them. I would strongly encourage you to encourage others to not shame anyone for using that term. Publicly shaming and canceling people for using terms we don't like is universally unhelpful. Obviously, sometimes canceling things could sometimes be holding people accountable when there's intentional harm happening. And But whenever possible, go to the person and have a conversation and try to um, many weeks ago, I had a conversation with Marie Pierre, a um, non-diet dietitian, where she talked about calling people in versus calling them out and just having a, a conversation about it. This is much more likely to lead to actual progress. Number two, social media is not the place to have nuanced conversations. I also have a conversation coming up with Dr. Alexis Connison soon. And she said, social media is not the land of nuance. So let's try whenever possible to have these conversations more face-to-face because we know if you haven't already, I highly recommend looking, 
watching The Social Dilemma, it helps to understand why we're so polarized. There's so much emotion charged in these topics, and while I think social media can be productive in some senses, it is not the place to be having these nuanced conversations. I I see very little productive conversations happening. So, number three... Food addiction probably isn't a very useful term for most. Like I said, I think it's useful to describe what we see. Some foods have addictive properties and are designed to hook us, and we do need to call out the food industry for that. And some people are more susceptible, likely, to these types of foods than others for a variety of reasons. Probably the most impact is restrictions, shame and guilt, and diet mentality. But even when we remove that, you might still feel a strong draw to these highly processed foods, if nothing else, just because they're something that's made you feel temporarily good in the past. So it's important to remember, nothing's wrong with you. Your brain is designed to draw you to these foods. It thinks it's helping you survive. And the food industry is spending a lot of money trying to hook you. And finally... Just remember, there is not one size fits all. In the health space, there is nuance. And I think it's really important that, you know, if you, like me, are drawn to sort of like being in one camp, which I think is, well, I know is normal. We all want to have a sense of belonging, but it's okay to have productive conversations that are kind across different groups and I think it's essential that we do so but I think we need to do so mostly off social media is my my at least maybe that's just my fear and avoidance I'm not sure I'm still on social media but um and then I think I think the main problem is when we're assuming what we know, we, that we know what's right for someone else, right? That's going to undermine autonomy when we're saying, here's the right way to think about it. Come on, just think about it this way. And um, yeah, it's no one likes that, even if maybe we do kind of if someone feels addicted to food and we kind of realize that it's probably mostly driven by restriction, We just need to be sensitive when we communicate about these very sensitive topics. So I hope that was helpful. Again, to recap, questions to ask yourself, does thinking about myself as having an addiction to food make me trust my body more or less? How much is fear of weight gain part of it? And can I shift towards eating in a way that will positively impact my mood? And what would that look like, right? So starting to ask yourself these questions And I look forward to hearing what you think about this topic. I'm curious if you thought that food addiction was controversial as much as I did or if you were surprised. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about whether this is helpful for you to think about yourself as, you know, you or others. Do you think this is ever a helpful term or do you think it's never helpful? So, Let me know, reach out, tag me on social media at psychology.of.wellness. And before we finish up here today, if anyone has 
a free moment, I'd love if you could pull up this Apple, uh, the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. I read all of them and I so appreciate them and it really helps others find the show. So you can just pull it up on the Apple Podcast app and just scroll down on your screen. You can do it as you're listening here and just scroll all the way down. You can just give it a review or you can write a review and I read all of those and I so appreciate you. So thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime, I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.